0: You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about foster care. Joining me is Dr. Jennifer Keim, who's an attending physician at the CHOP Carabat's Pediatric Care Center. She also runs the Action Foster Care Clinic and is a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Keim. Thanks for having me. So it is foster care month, which is why we are focusing on this topic, and it's something that we've done before on this podcast, so listeners can go back and listen to that prior episode that's full of great information from some of our pediatric residents. But we're going to touch on some other points about foster care today with you, and I thought maybe we could start with some definitions of the different types of foster care placements. I've heard some of my pediatrician friends say that they're confused by the difference between some of these terms like emergency care versus respite care, or even the different types of kinship care. So I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of the different ways that kids might be placed in the foster care system.
2: Sure, so remember that foster care is a social service that provides out of home temporary placement away from a child's family of origin by the local child welfare agency. And the primary goal of child welfare services is really to preserve and strengthen the child's own home whenever possible. But when this environment is not safe for a variety of reasons that might include abuse, neglect, parental substance use, mental health disorders, or incarceration, Then a child will be placed into foster care. So there are different types of placements, including non-relative foster care, which is what it sounds like, and then kinship care, which is when you're in the care of relatives. You might also hear the term resource parent more often now, which is inclusive of both non-relative and kinship caregivers and highlights their responsibility to provide a safe, stable, nurturing environment. There are also placements that are designated as medical foster homes or therapeutic homes for children with complex health care needs. And then while being in a home environment is preferred, sometimes children or adolescents are placed in congregate care settings, like group homes or residential treatment facilities. And then respite care is short-term care, provided when a resource family cannot care for their foster child for just a brief period of time. And emergency foster care is when an out-of-home placement is needed emergently, but a longer-term placement can't be immediately identified, for example, if a placement is needed in the middle of the night.
1: Thank you for going through some of those different terms with us. And I think it's really important that you emphasize to the fluidity here in that kids might be placed, for example, in emergency care, but then ultimately end up in a different type of placement. And we both know that children who are placed in foster care often do have many different placements throughout their
2: stay in the foster care system placement instability is definitely a factor that you want to think about for your children who are in foster care and you can ask how many placements have they been in or how long have they been in their current placement can give you an idea about the instability and changes that are going in in the child's life which can be really disruptive and
0: although there's
1: approximately 400,000 to 500,000 US children in foster care each year pediatricians may not see them in their clinic often enough to feel proficient and up-to-date with the medical guidelines that are out there. And I know that in 2020, the AAP released a clinical report on supporting families of children who are adopted, fostered, or in kinship care. But in the clinic with a patient, it's hard to read a clinical report. So CHOP has a clinical pathway for the medical evaluation of children in foster care. And like all of our clinical pathways, it offers an evidence-based algorithm to medical management. As a co-author of this pathway, I know that it's no coincidence that the top of this pathway emphasizes trauma-informed care, and most children in foster care have experienced some sort of trauma, often related to abuse or neglect, as you mentioned before, as well as stressors related to foster care placement. So can you talk about how we use a trauma-informed approach to care for these children and what trauma resources exist for our patients?
2: Yeah. So... Especially for children in foster care, you want to assume that they have experienced trauma. And you should really take a universal precautions approach when it comes to trauma informed care. So, some tips you can use when you have these patients in your office is to do your best to limit questions about the details of abuse or neglect in front of the child, and to make sure to spend time speaking with the caregiver separate from the child. When it comes to specifics about the reason for foster care placement, court proceedings, permanency planning, or other sensitive topics. And then I also tend to speak to children alone younger than adolescents when we typically start doing that, keeping in mind that confidentiality rules might not apply, but this allows me to build a trusting relationship with the child as well as assess for safety in the foster home because, unfortunately, abuse within foster care is a reality. So if possible within your schedule, try to allow for extra time for these visits for children in foster care because these are patients with both complex social needs as well as mental and physical health needs. You can be aware that certain procedures like vaccines or lab draws may be challenging for patients who have experienced trauma. And for all patients, but especially patients in foster care, be mindful about privacy and consent when it comes to sensitive physical exams, especially for patients who have experienced sexual abuse. And then some routine guidance doesn't apply to traumatized children. So for example, a common strategy for caregivers to handle temper tantrums in toddlers is to ignore them. But for a child who has experienced neglect, ignoring triggers the child's stress response and can exacerbate the externalizing behavior that you're seeing. So instead, caregivers can promote the tend and befriend oxytocin-mediated pathway to get down on the child's level and help them identify their emotions and learn to self-regulate. So some resources that I like for both caregivers and providers about trauma-informed care include things from the National Children's Traumatic Stress Network, and then the AAP has a trauma toolbox for primary care, which has a variety of evidence-based resources.
1: That's great. I really like your point that some of the parenting strategies that foster parents may have tried with their own children might not be as effective for the child that they bring in from foster care. And to really have pediatricians be mindful that, again, some of the anticipatory guidance that we give routinely may need to be adapted for children who are in foster care. So thank you for telling us about Tend and Befriend. I like that one. Now, you mentioned extra time being needed, which is certainly something that I know many pediatricians feel when they're caring for children in foster care. And so those of us at CHOP are lucky to have resources available to us. And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about some of the resources that we have beyond the clinical pathway in terms of guidelines, programs, and things that are available to people in the Philadelphia area that CHOP can offer them.
2: Yeah, so I can tell you about the Fostering Health Program, which is run by Dr. Kristen Fortin at Safe Place, the Center for Child Protection and Health at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And the nurse manager and care coordinator extraordinaire is Judy Dawson. They provide one time multidisciplinary evaluations for children entering foster care. And then link the patients to hopefully their original medical home for ongoing care. And Judy helps do some of these more time-intensive things, like gather the disjointed medical records and immunization histories for these patients. A unique part of the visit is an evaluation by an occupational therapist who assesses developmental milestones and academic functioning. And then they do screeners like the Pediatric Symptom Checklist, PSC-17, and the Child PTSD Symptom Scale, CPSS-5. They take all of the information from their evaluation and put it together in a health passport document that can help communicate the child's medical needs to child's future providers, caregivers, and child welfare agency. Because so often that information gets lost in translation or not handed off at all to provide better continuous care for these children.
1: Such a great resource. And we're so lucky to have them at CHOP. And again, if you don't have a center like this at your institution, at least the clinical pathway can be a good resource for you in guiding the management of these patients in clinic. Now, a piece of that pathway talks about consent and confidentiality, and this is one of the challenges that I hear people talk about in clinic and caring for children in foster care. Providers often tell me that they aren't sure what information they can share with foster parents versus biologic parents or who they need to ask for consent for things like vaccinations or mental health referrals and treatment. So how can we find out the answers to our questions around consent and confidentiality if we don't have a social worker available
2: to us? Yeah, that's a great question, and I feel lucky that we have such a great team of social workers at our office and throughout CHOP. But I encourage you to get the contact information for the child welfare caseworker and or supervisor. They will have the official information about whether parental rights are intact for consenting purposes, or who has the power to consent for non-routine care. And then to make it even more complicated, things vary by local or state rules and regulations. So you can try to become familiar with those. And for general guiding principles, there is a chapter on medical consents in the AAP Fostering Health Book, So a little bit of information and distinguishing between routine care and non-routine care. So child welfare agencies obtain a general medical consent from the biological parents at the time of placement, and this allows the resource parent to consent for routine care. So routine care includes well visits, treatment of routine childhood diseases and illnesses like your asthma, ear infections, strep throat, and standard immunizations. Except where it's known that a parent or legal guardian has an objection on the basis of religion, resource parents can consent to routine immunizations. And then for non-routine care, consent should be obtained from the biological parents if their rights are intact. In a situation where the care is medically necessary, A court order can be obtained if the child's parent refuses, lacks capacity, or can't be located. So some examples of non-routine care are the non-required immunizations like flu shot or COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. But this is a bit controversial because we don't want to restrict access to an already vulnerable population things like developmental evaluations through early intervention is considered non-routine care that needs a consent. And so are mental and behavioral health services and psychotropic medications for children under 14 years of age. So these are some of the barriers to receiving those kinds of services and care that children in foster care might have to get through. And then for the second part of your question about confidentiality things. On the one hand, the resource parent needs to know the child's medical history in order to safely care for them. But on the other hand, some details of a medical history, especially a birth history, has information about the biological family members that really shouldn't be disclosed to the resource parent. So things like substance exposure in utero and perineal STI or HIV exposure can be a little bit tricky. So I think that was about as clear as mud, but (laughs) just keep in mind that these are complicated issues and you won't necessarily know the right answer right off the bat. So to check in with the child welfare agency about who is allowed to consent to what.
1: Well, I think it's helpful to hear that someone even like you with tons of experience in this area also feels the challenges of navigating consent and confidentiality. And so it's helpful to know that, like you said, we should talk to the agency and really kind of look for answers because things will be variable patient to patient and depending on where we practice. So thank you for I think you really did clarify a lot there, um, even though it is very murky as a subject. Now, one of the things that we talked about before is the many placements that children might experience. And because of that, continuity with our patients who are in foster care can be challenging. And I think many of us wonder what the outcomes are for these patients when we don't get to see them for follow up. So, can you tell us some of the current
2: statistics on reunification, adoption, and aging out? Sure. So, remember that foster care is meant to be a temporary measure. So the ultimate goal is permanency for a child. So I can define the different permanency categories and give you some national statistics from the 2021 Adoption and Foster Care Analysis and Reporting System, or AFCARS, and then local statistics for Philadelphia from 2022. So the primary permanency goal is reunification with the family of origin. Nationally, reunification was the reason for foster care discharge 47% of the time, and in Philadelphia it was similar at about 45%. If a child cannot be returned home, the next most permanent plan is for that child to be adopted. For a child to be adopted, parental rights must first be terminated. Nationally, adoption was the reason for foster care discharge 25% of the time. In Philadelphia, that number was much higher, at 42%. If there's a good reason why parental rights should not be terminated, permanent legal custodianship, or PLC, may be considered. And PLC makes another person, often a family member, the child's legal custodian. PLC was the reason for foster care discharge 18% of the time nationally and 12% of the time in Philadelphia. And then aging out refers to the time when a young adult leaves the child welfare system without achieving any of those permanency options and the youth is being discharged on their own. So discussion of aging out and transition to adult care could be its own entire podcast. But as you can imagine, this already challenging transition is made even more difficult when young adults leave the foster care system, don't have the emotional or financial support to make that change. So, nationally, of those exiting foster care, 9% do so by aging out, which is about 20,000 young adults each year, mm-hmm. which is a much larger number than I had anticipated when I was looking up the data for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And can you explain
1: the difference between the permanent legal custodian that you mentioned
2: versus adoption? It's a legal discrepancy, and the difference is whether or not parental rights have been terminated. Okay, Parental rights being terminated is something that gets decided by the court's Based on some national laws, the child needs to have been in foster care placement for at least 15 of the previous 22 months, as well as meeting some other qualifications. So in certain circumstances, maybe they don't meet those requirements, but reunification with the parent or adoption is not an option. This PLC will come into effect I've seen it for situations where like a much older sibling has guardianship over the child Mm -hmm. where the biological parent is still around or maybe even involved, but for whatever reason, can't care for the child. Thank you for clarifying
1: that distinction. Now, we've covered a lot of ground today. And as you mentioned, there's still so much more to learn. We could do separate podcasts on many of the things that we talked about. But what are some of your favorite resources for providers and families?
2: Yeah, so hopefully you'll use this podcast as a resource, <laughs> but there's a couple of favorites. So the AAP has a series of resources called Safe and Sound that is not specifically for children in foster care, but children who have experienced trauma. So that's a really nice website with a whole host of resources. A general resource that's more of, a person, are either CASA volunteers or guardian ad litems. So a CASA volunteer is a court-appointed special advocate or guardian ad litem. The title varies by location, but it's someone who is appointed by the court to advocate for the best interest of children who have experienced abuse or neglect. And the worker stays with each case or child until permanency is achieved, So you can ask your patients in foster care if they have a CASA volunteer or guardian ad litem advocating for them in court. And if they don't, you can kind of request or step in to try to get one of those people appointed to them, which is a truly evidence-based way to achieve permanency. And the CASA volunteers and guardian ad litems often have a lot more information about the child and their history than the child welfare workers who tend to turn over frequently. Another great resource, every good pediatrician loves Sesame Street. (laughs) So Sesame Workshop is the nonprofit educational organization behind Sesame Street, has programming to offer support to children, foster parents, And providers who serve foster families. And it features Carly, a young Muppet who is in foster care, and her four now parents. Mm -hmm. And then Camp to Belong is an amazing organization that has camps across the country that reunites siblings who have become separated by the foster care system through a week of camp in the summer and other events throughout the year. Camp to Belong River Valley is the local Pennsylvania, New Jersey chapter that was actually started by a former CHOP nurse and adoptive parent herself, Sammy Emder.
1: Wow. Well, I thought I knew a lot about this topic, but I've learned so much from you today. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. I love people to walk away with a few pearls just to reinforce some of the things that you have taught us. And so I'm wondering, what are your top two takeaways for primary care providers?
2: Yeah, so I would say the first thing would be children in foster care are a special needs population that really require additional expertise, time, and resources to provide excellent primary care. So consider them as a special needs population. And then also remember that foster care is the intervention for children who have experienced abuse or neglect, to be in a safe, stable, nurturing environment, and that the pediatrician's anticipatory guidance and referrals can help these children in this difficult, temporary, transitional time period to help buffer toxic stress and to build resilience.
1: That is beautifully said. And for those of us who do get to maintain continuity with these patients, we really can be a protective factor in these children's lives and a person of stability, as you mentioned. So um, thank you to everyone who takes care of children, really. Anyone who's caring for children, especially, as you mentioned, children with special needs who may be in foster care placement. So thank you so much, Dr. Kime, for your work and for sharing your knowledge with us today.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.